Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I think I've been with you guys a long time that every time I go to the beach, I always have the same question. Every time I come back, did you get a tan? Like, really? And my response every time is, no. I cannot get a tan. I cannot. So don't ask me that question anymore, okay? <laughs> it is a pleasure to be with you this morning. Very thankful to be with you. If you're a guest, welcome to First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. We're always excited to have guests with us. And if you're a member, know this, that we love you. Uh, we've been praying for you. And we're thankful for you. As Jamie read through the text, our title for the sermon this morning is God is our king. There is just something amazing about a good king. You know, I love uh, the movie, The Lord of the Rings, and the last one, The Return of the King. There is this king, Aragon, who is the promised king, the good king. But in his place was this regiment who did not do what he needed to do. And when Aragon was placed on that throne, he brought peace to the people. There is a great thing about a good king. A great thing about a good king. And we can imagine a lot of the rings and he brought peace, but God brings even more peace to his people because God is the ultimate king. He is the eternal king. And with that, Psalm 99 verses 1 through 9 captures the kingship of our Lord. And he says this, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who call upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the clouds he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and his statue that he gave them. Oh, Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of all their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. What a powerful passage of scripture that depicts God's kingship. He's enthroned. He sits on his throne and he is ruling and he is righteous and he is holy. So we find here in Psalm 99 that the psalmist expresses that God is our true king. And he calls for the people to worship God and to serve God. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the elders of the Israelites requested that God send them an earthly king. I mean, come on, guys. Who is your king? God is your king. Why are you asking for an earthly king? And that request 
gives us a picture of their spiritual condition. Gives us a picture of their spiritual condition. So this morning, I want us to observe two ways, two ways that believing in God's kingship can directly impact our lives. Two ways that believing in God's kingship can directly impact our lives. Way number one, because God is king, we are called to be devoted to him. He's king of kings, lord of lords. You are called to be devoted to him. Point number two, because God is king, we are called to be holy. We're called to be holy. It's amazing as we're walking through the book of Samuel, we see the spiritual condition of the people, right? Tells us in the book of Judges, the end of the book of Judges, that the people did what was right in their own eyes. We see that Hannah is crying out to God because of her affliction and in her pain, she turned to God and she asked for a son so that she can give the son back to God. What amazing prayer. What great faith. In chapter 2, we see Hannah's prayer. She's praying to the Lord. She's thanking God that he is going to save his people. In the same chapter, we see the, the, the contrast between Samuel and the sons of Eli. As a young boy, Samuel is serving the Lord. He's in the temple of the Lord. The sons of Eli were worthless and wicked men. In chapter 3, we see that Samuel is near the Ark of the Covenant. God speaks to him, Samuel, Samuel, and then he responds. At the end of chapter 3, we notice that God's word came to Samuel. The beginning of chapter 3, we are told that God's word was rare in that time. But at the end of chapter 3, God is speaking to his people. In chapter 4, we see the folly of God's people. They're saying to themselves that we can go and fight against the Philistines and we will bring the Ark of the Covenant like a lucky charm theology and God's going to give us the victory. But they found out that you don't play with God. God is more concerned about our hearts. He's more concerned about our hearts. We being devoted to him. God allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be captured. We see this in chapter 5 as well. The Ark of the Covenant is among the Philistines. God's hand came heavily upon the people. Heavily upon the people. The Ark of the Covenant makes its way back to the Israelites. And then we notice the Gibeonites were the ones who dwell with the Ark of the Covenant. In chapter 7, a great and powerful passage of Scripture. Do you remember this? Do you remember reading through the book of Samuel that Samuel calls the people to repent, to turn from your sins, and to turn to God? So in their great repentance, we see their acknowledging of their sins. We see the sense of sorrow, right? And according to the New Testament, godly sorrow leads to repentance, and we see godly sorrow we see a, a national repentance. It doesn't mean that all of the people in Israel genuinely repented. No. But there were some in there who genuinely repented. And because of their repentance, God brought about great victory. 
And now we're in chapter 8. Years after that great repentance. How do you know that, Kevin? Because according to the text, in chapter 8, it begins by telling us that Samuel was old. <laughs> in chapter 7, he's still young. In chapter 8, he's old. So we have no clue how, what's the time span between chapter 7 and chapter 8. It could be 40 years. It could be 50 years. It could be 20. But because of time, we notice what happened to the people. They're requesting for a king. So our two points here are great guides for us. Listen to me. As we dive within this passage of scripture, ask yourself some important questions. What can we learn about God in this text? The Bible is an autobiography of God. When we open the Bible, we always ask ourselves, what can I learn about my Savior, my God? And by learning about God, I can understand more about myself. And the second is, what should I or what can I apply in this text, right? What is my application here? Now that I know God, now that I know my heart, what must I do? What must I do? The Bible is always asking for us to move, to make a decision, to choose. Don't just sit there. And be like, wow, this is great theology for me. No, this great theology, this thing that you're going to learn about God is meant for you to serve him, to move on his behalf. So join me as I pray for us. Father, I am so thankful for your grace and your mercy. I am thankful for this passage of scripture. I am thankful that looking at the Israelites, even in their depravity and their sins that you made a way for them that you are forgiven an all-knowing merciful God so father I pray for our hearts as we desire to know more about you cause us O oh Lord to act to live for Jesus to be introspective to look at our hearts and to repent and to trust in the finishing work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But teach us what we do not know. Make us what we are not. And give us what we do not have. We ask all of this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. God's people said, amen, amen. Point number one, because God is king, we are called to be devoted to him. Again, if you look at chapter 8, it begins by saying to us, when Samuel became old, when Samuel became old, you know, what's amazing about this, it seems like with time, we tend to forget the goodness of God in our lives, right? That God can do something in our lives 15 years ago, and then we, we, we tend to forget how amazing God is. We, we tend to forget how God fought our battles. We, we, we tend to rely upon ourselves, and this is exactly what we're noticing here. Because of time, these people are forgetting and our monument, our Ebenezer, is buried under our anxieties and problems in this life. In chapter 7, because God fought for his people, that Samuel said, erect this monument and we will call it our Ebenezer. God is our help. So always go back to this monument and say to yourself, God, you are powerful. You are powerful. 
But in this situation, instead of them going back to it, they're allowing their anxieties and their problems to bury that Ebenezer, that monument. And friends, I'm asking that you do not do this. So the text tells us two issues here. Issue number one, it's just a process of life. Samuel is getting old. We're all getting old. <laughs> Samuel is getting old here. And in the text, it mentioned that the people came to him because in his oldness, Samuel placed his two sons as judges. And according to the text, if you read very carefully, it mentioned here that they were wicked men. They took bribes. They took bribes, perverted justice here. Now stop. And I've been thinking deeply about this. As a young father, this, this is bothering me tremendously. All week I've been thinking about this right here. How in the world do we have Samuel and Eli who are opposite? Eli did not serve God. Samuel served God. Eli had two sons who did not serve God, but then Samuel's two sons also did not serve God. You mean to tell me, God, if we do everything that you've called for us to do to live righteously for you, to preach the gospel to our children, to bring our children to church, to have Bible studies with our children, that it's not a guarantee that they will be saved? <laughs> That's heart-wrenching. I don't know about you, I like guarantees. I like to do something and guarantee there's going to be something in return. And, and this here is bothersome to me. How is this possible? What does God want us to do here? When we come to the place of understanding there is nothing we can do to save our children, to save our lost spouse, to save the lost people around us, what it does, it should do this to us. Cause us to get on our knees and seek God. That's what it's, that's what it's called for us to do. I said to you, there is this overwhelming feeling, it bothers me, but then the Lord in his mercy is saying, Kev, you, you cannot save your children, but, but in the midst of all of this, pray for them. Pray that I will do something. In my disparity, I'm casting myself upon the Lord and saying, God, do something in their hearts, because I cannot do it. They cannot do it. I need you to move. And this is exactly what we see here. Samuel and Eli are great examples that you could be teaching your children the word. You, you, you could be bringing them to church and they can grow up and not serve God. And we can say to ourselves, God, I know that I've done the right thing. So, so what must we do here? Do we neglect teaching them because there's no guarantee? No, we are called to continue to teach them, to continue to lead them. But the most important thing that we can do for our children and the lost people around us is to pray for them. Pray that God will grab hold of their hearts. This is a reminder here. But notice very carefully, Samuel's sons 
are given two godly names. They're given two divine names. What what are they names here? Joel means God is Yahweh. And Abijah basically means my father is Yahweh. I mean, you don't get more biblical than that. (laughs) But what happens here? We notice in the text, according to what the text is telling us, they took bribes. They perverted justice. And do you know what God says about this? Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subvert the cause of the righteous. Coming closer and get this. When a religious leader perverts justice, society dies out hopelessly. You get it. That's why God is against it. He's against it. So what does the people do? What do they do here? They, they come to Samuel, according to the narrative. They're seeing two problems. Samuel, get, you're getting older. You're not going to last forever. And the two sons that you've placed in that position, they, they are not wise and godly men like you. So they're saying to Samuel, do something. They're demanding that Samuel give them a king. And by doing that, they're rejecting God's kingship over them. Do you get it? The people demand for a human king was a rejection of this eternal king. It was. But here's another problem. Here's another problem with this text. As I'm struggling, I just want to invite you to my studies, okay? So I'm reading this in 1 Samuel, but I remembered in my personal quiet time, my Bible reading plan with a group of guys, I came across a passage of scripture in Deuteronomy where God said, when you go into the promised land and you ask for a king, this is what you must do. As if God has given the people permission to have a king. So if he has given them permission in Deuteronomy, why is God upset in 1 Samuel? Notice with me very carefully in Deuteronomy 17 verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. And then God goes on by saying what they must do. So, so what is going on here? Is, is scripture contradicting itself here? That God has given them a permission and then all of a sudden God gets upset? As if God forgot that he told them they can get a king? No, no. Come, come in closer. And I need you to see this. When I saw this, when I saw this, there is great rejoicing. Because this passage of scripture tells us more about who God is than anything else. The first thing that we need to understand based on Deuteronomy 17 and 1 Samuel 8 is that God is an all-knowing God. 
God knew that's exactly what the people were going to do. He knew that. He knew that the moment they entered into the promised land, that they will want a king over him. He knew of the rebellion of the people. He knew of their sins altogether. Was God caught by surprise? No. If you read the narrative again, Samuel was even more upset than God was. <laughs> Samuel's upset and God's like, hold up, Samuel. Calm down, dude. Calm down. This is what you must do. He's not surprised. He's an all-knowing God. All-knowing God. This invites us to trust in this all-knowing God. He knows all things before it even happens. And he's a good God. What's the next thing we must understand from these two passages of Scripture? What, what is it? Second? The second attribute here is that God is a merciful God. So instead of abandoning his people, God gives mercy to them. This is what Deuteronomy 17 is doing here. Deuteronomy 17 is, is really saying that God has forgiven his people even before they requested a king. God's mercy is far-reaching. God is a forgiven God. And this is exactly what he's doing here. He's like, when you enter into the promised land, not even you, your ancestors, this is what they're going to do, and this is what I'm going to do. There is mercy here. There is forgiveness here. Friends, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Come in closer. Come in closer and get this. We see with Samuel, after God's mercy, right? Samuel got angry at the people and immediately after that, he counteracted by praying to God. Do you see it? This is a great challenge for us. What must we do here? Come in closer. Don't miss this. Write this down if you can. When we face difficult situations or difficult people, our counteraction should be turning to God in prayer. What exactly... Do we see Samuel is doing in this text? He's upset at the people. Then he turned to God in prayer. He turned to God in prayer. This is exactly what we notice with Nehemiah as well. In Nehemiah chapter 1, when he heard of the destruction of Jerusalem and the chaos, he wept bitterly, and then he turned to God in prayer and fasting. Our Lord and Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he faced such great temptation, what did Jesus do? He prayed, prayed so much that he sweat blood. So if Jesus, being God, faces the Father in his most difficult time, how much more should we face God in our difficulties? So Samuel turns to God in prayer. God, do something. I could imagine that Samuel probably wanted to be like Moses, right? Grab a staff and maybe just start wanting to hit people on the head. You knucklehead. You tether. How dare you? Can you see God's mercy and kindness? Why are you doing this, right? 
But unlike Moses, who reacted with anger, Samuel counteracted by turning to God in prayer. A great truth for us. But notice here that God had three replies for Samuel. Do you see it? Do you see it in the text? First, what God does here is that he reassures his servant. He encourages Samuel. There is a sense of despair for Samuel as a great leader, that he has led the people to great victory and victory over victory. And now he's seen that they're wanting to turn away from the Lord. So for Samuel, there is discouragement. Leaders, you get this. Parents, you get this. I mean, you're praying and praying and praying for your children. Leaders, you're praying and praying for people and seeing that people are drifting from the Lord. You see they take five steps forward and they take 15 steps backwards. And you're like, come on, you're almost there. What are you doing? This is a great reminder for us here. What the Lord says to Samuel Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. What we are called to do, don't miss this, come in closer. What we are called to do is to be faithful to the Lord. For those of you who have unbelieving children, be faithful to the Lord. Your spouse is an unbeliever, be faithful to the Lord. Be faithful. Live righteously. Proclaim the glories of God. That's what you're called to do. Say, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They are rejecting me. As a matter of fact, that's the disposition of the people. From the time I got them out of Egypt, they have been rejecting me. That's their disposition. Notice what the Lord mentions here in verse 7. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And then in verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaken me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Wow. What else do we see here? The second thing we notice is that God granted their requests. Ah, my friends, this right here should bring great reverence for God in our hearts. Listen, not every prayer request that you pray for that is given to you means that it's good for you. Do you get this? Who's granted it? God has given it. God has given it. Don't forget Romans chapter 1. God gave them over to their desires. They're, they're wanting their lustful desires. God's like, okay, you want it? Here it is. God's granting it to them. Their dishonorable lives, they're wanting it. God gives it to them. And then finally, God gave them up to a debased mind. Don't miss this. The elders here are crying out for a king, and God gives it to them. 
be careful the kind of prayers that we're praying for that are not centered in God. Be, be, be careful. And here we notice that God gave it to them. God gave them the king that they wanted. God also warned them. Warned them. Before we see this, I want you to get this from this one commentator. Richard Phillips, this is what he states. The more we realize how sinful our hearts are and how frequently our thoughts and desires run astray, the more we humbly desire God to overrule our prayers so that his wisdom will overcome our folly and his holiness will correct our sin. This is righteous prayers. Not the popcorn prayers and the self-centered prayers that we in our American culture are constantly giving out. God, make me rich. I want, want more money. I want bigger homes. I want bigger stuff, God. Make me happy by giving me all these materialistic things. Be careful what you pray for. Are you praying for his will? Are you praying for his will? The third response here is that Samuel warned the people of God. Do you see it in verse 9? God tells Samuel to warn the people, Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways the king who shall reign over you. So God is warning them. You want a king? I will give you a king. But I'm warning you, there are issues here. You will suffer here. Turn away from that. Turn away from it. You want it? I'm going to give it to you, but I'm warning you. I'm warning you. You know, what's amazing here is that after Samuel warns, he gives really a depiction of human lordship, the depravity of human lordship. And when we think about human lordship, we think about oppression. A really bad king oppresses his people. It really does. Where the kingship of God liberates his people. A bad king brings a sense of discouragement to his people. But the kingship of God encourages his people. Do you see it? Here... Samuel is depicting the depravity of human lordship. And in that, he tells the people six times what the king will take. Do you see it? The king will take their sons. The king will take their daughters. The king will take their field. The king will take their vineyard. Human lordship takes. God's kingship gives. Do you see it? This is a picture that God wants the people to see here. They will take it. And this scenario is well played out for us. Two generations later, don't miss this. Don't miss this. It's how important the word of God is. Two generations later, under the kingship of Solomon, the people of God suffered greatly. Solomon built the temple for the Lord. 
he also took 11 years or seven years to build his own palace. And in that time, he took from the people. They had to work and work and work, as we see in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38. When Solomon died, the people went to his son and said to his son, look, your dad is dead. The house of the Lord is completed. His palace is completed. Please show us some leniency. You know what the king said to him? He says, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My dad led you with whips. I will lead you with scorpions, is what he said. Therefore, fulfilling God's prophecy, two generations later, Oh, friends, what must we see here? That God's kingship commands, commands for us to be devoted to him. Government is not your king. No one in your life is king with God. You must serve him and be devoted to him and worship him. What else do we see here? Notice the second and last As God is king, we are called to be holy. God is king, called to be holy. Don't miss this. In chapter 14, verse 2, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. This is what he mentions here. For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Do you notice the people's requests in verse 4 and verse 19? Give us a king. Give us a king. But notice, notice with me and read verse 19. Notice verse 19. After Samuel warned them, he warned them, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no. <laughs> no. There shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations. In verse 4, they said the same thing, give us a king like the other nations. Verse 19, we may be like the other nations. Don't miss this like the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. But when you notice the people of God, according to Deuteronomy chapter 14, God's people are called to be different. God's people are not called to be like the other nations because God is not like the other gods. He is the only God. God is separate from the other nations, and so must his people be separate from the other nations. So here specifically, they're asking to be like the other nations. They're really looking to throw away their special, their special status as chosen people of God 
in order to identify themselves with the other nations. But stop, Kevin. We're not doing the same thing. The church, we're not doing the same thing. Christians, are you not doing the same thing? Hasn't God called you to be different? In first century, the first century Christians were living among unbelievers who were persecuting them, but who were also pagans. And then we notice that the Apostle Paul writes them and he tells them, Peter that is, in 1 Peter he says to them in chapter 1 that you must be holy because God is holy. So Christians are characterized as holy people. Why? Because their God is holy. And then he went down further in chapter 2 and he tells them to put off malice and envy and all the sin. And then later on in the same chapter, verses 4 through 5, he reminds them of their identity. Who, who are you in Christ? And see how these words are very similar to the words here. Notice what he mentions here. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. For what? To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God's people are called to be holy. We're called to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. So the very fact that the nation of Israel were asking to be like the other nations is a rejection of God himself. They were not devoted to him like they should, but also they were not holy like they should. Notice with me very carefully. The elders go into Samuel, as we close, the elders go into Samuel and asking Samuel specifically to appoint a king is a major issue because what they're really doing is that they're looking outside of the nation of Israel, looking at the world and saying the world's solution is going to help the people of Israel. But there's a major issue with that. They're wanting a king like the world. They're wanting things like the world when God called them to be separate. And here's the issue for us today in our church, in many churches. We are desiring to get the views and solutions of the world to impact and influence the church. Let me give you a perfect example of this. You know, today, committees or pastors, pulpit committees, are no longer looking for the qualification of a pastor in 1 Timothy. What they're doing is they're looking for pastors who have a business mind, a pastor who can attract more people to the church, a pastor who has so much, who is so gifted with administration, rather than the qualifications in 1 Timothy, that he must be a one-woman man that he must have good reputation in the church and outside of the church. That he must love his family and teach his family. He must not be one who is greedy for gain. 
What the church is doing today is looking at the solutions of the world and trying to bring it into the local church. And friends, we have major issues with that. Are we any different from the time of Samuel with the people of Israel? Should we not be careful? We must stick to the word of God and trust the word of God. As a matter of fact, one commentator mentions, this is what he says. He says, how should we understand the elders demand here? Bill Arnold described it as sinful in its motives since their request rep represented a rebellion against God's rule, selfish in its timing, since they demanded God's provision at the end of their own choosing and cowardly in its spirit, since they sought a system that would remove the need for their faith in the Lord. Friends, we must be very careful. A few years ago, I sat in a meeting where he used to be the president of the LBC, Louisiana Baptist Convention. And in the meeting itself, he was talking about how we need to get more people in the church. And his view was this. He watched how the Catholics had the Catholics come home interviews or, or commercials. And he saw how the Mormons had the Mormons come home commercials. And he said, this is exactly what we need to do. He was asking for local churches to give thousands of dollars to run ads to get people to come to the local church. His target specifically were the ones that used to come to the church and left. And I thought to myself, isn't that a problem? What about Jesus's way of evangelizing, of discipling our people, encouraging our people to go out and do it that way, rather than trying to find what the world is doing and bring it into the local church? Do we know that these people who left the church, if they left under church discipline, if they left because they were never saved and all of a sudden all you want to do is to get a bunch of these people to come back into the local church. The church is for believers. Well, Kevin, are we not concerned about the lost? Yes. But evangelism is not called for us to just get a bunch of people to come here. Evangelism is for us to go. Friends, this is our holy huddle. What do you mean by this, Kevin? When you play football, you come together, the quarterback tells you exactly what you're gonna run, and then you break the huddle and you go. This is our holy huddle. We come together, we're encouraged by one another, and then we go out there. We evangelize to people. We call people to see the glorious gospel. Don't bring them in here for me to preach the gospel to them. It's your job. My job is to feed you, the church. I think we have it all wrong when we try to get the solutions of the world to be a part of the church we're going to have don't miss this don't miss this please as I close we will have a lot of goats in the church rather than sheep in the church but friends we need to pray we need to seek the Lord and we need to do exactly what Samuel is doing 
and don't do what the Israelites is doing. Can we pray? Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you have created a way for us. Even when we sin, even when we turn our backs on you, that you are merciful and kind. Send the church out into this world with this rescue mission. Rather, God, let us not try to bring all the different schemes that the world is doing into the local church. Let us pursue righteousness and holiness. And from that, God, let us proclaim the glorious news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we want to serve you. And your church, your bride, is beautiful. Let's not try to stain her. Let's not try, God, to bring in all kinds of horrible things that takes away from the church, God. The Apostle Paul says the church is the, the pillar and buttress of the truth, and we are called to uphold the truth. So when people walk into the doors of the church, they should see us uplifting the word, proclaiming the God, be with us. We are weak people. We are sinful people. And we are in desperate need of your help. Lead us all. Our desire, God, is to see us grow deeper into your word, Father. Deeper into a relationship with you. Deeper into our understanding of the gospel. And by going deep, we find ourselves, God, influencing others, influencing our families, influencing our friends and our co-workers to help us live for Jesus. In your mighty and precious name, amen.